Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame. And you got the, and there's a. Now that's a follow-up question, <laughs> Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. We're coming to you once again from our respective homes for another edition of Self-Isolation Theater. I know I've spent a lot of uh, time trying to consume content that makes me feel happy the last few weeks, so hopefully this podcast can bring a little bit of that as well. Uh, we wanted to bring on another guest this week, and we went back to our roots and invited on our first ever podcast guest, and that's Mike Farrell, former Tribune reporter and current University of Washington football beat writer for the Seattle Times. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I like to think that I make you guys feel happy as well, and that's why you chose me. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we, we, when we think happy, we think Mike Farrell. <laughs> but it also brings sadness because you're no longer with us, too. We also well, figure you get better ratings than Brady Quinn. <laughs> yeah, so no well, pressure. Just wait. I'm going to drop some real bombs, and then we'll get the ratings. So, <laughs> <laughs> so let's just start off. How, how, how are things going for you? How are uh, you handling this coronavirus situation? What's what's uh, been life like for Mike Farrell these last few weeks? Well, I mean, same as anybody, it's been a crazy time. But I think you know my perspective is is pretty interesting, um, given that Seattle kind of was the epicenter of all of this, and it sort of started here before anywhere. It was the first documented cases, the first documented deaths. I mean, we our newsroom was shut down. Everyone was working remotely. I think weeks before you know, this kind of uh, spread more nationally in terms of, you know, recognition and people starting to take it really seriously. So it, it felt like I kind of started to see things happening um, just locally before before everything spread in more into more of a national story. So uh, I've been isolating pretty hard. Um, you know, I'm getting out in the mornings for walks and things and in the afternoons, but it's uh, just like you guys. I mean, it's been just an adjustment in terms of the way that we do just about everything you know, sports reporters are used to working from home a lot. So that's not too much, much different, but just trying to come up with different ideas and stories and, and things. It's, you know, everything is sort of just uh, trying to do our best. So that's kind of where I'm at. Just following up with that, Mike, because you guys were early with this, have you, I don't know what the stats are for the state of Washington, but is there some flattening of the curve yet? Have you guys, in terms of cases uh, with this? Yeah, um, I, I think that I'm not, I don't think we've peaked yet, but I do think that there are indications that um, that the curve is flattening to some degree and that uh, the social distancing aspects and the stay at home order and everything are, are, are working and, and things are are positive from that standpoint. So, I mean, the numbers here were really huge um unfortunately for for a long time and i think we're still kind of riding that out but there does seem to be um positive results coming in, in terms of the way that people are responding to it so yeah so i guess it's uh it's bad news and good news it's bad news just in the sense of the way everything is hit but i think the response has been what it you know has needed to be to this point mike how how is uh the Washington football team sort of handled all this. What, what what were they able to do in terms of getting some spring practice in and uh, what how sort of chaotic has this been considering they have a new head coach that's off season and trying to make that transition? 
Yeah, it's been um, it's been fascinating. Uh, spring practice hasn't happened at all because um, UW is on the quarter system. So what they do is they go to spring break typically, and then they come back and they just do all of their spring practice in one big chunk, unlike Notre Dame. So their spring practice is usually some of the latest in the country. It was supposed to start, I believe, on April 1st and go until April 25th. So none of that happened. Um, so there was no spring practice whatsoever, which is makes it really interesting um, from the perspective of, like you mentioned, there's a new head coach, but he had obviously been here. So that's not too different. But they brought in a new offensive coordinator in John Donovan, um, someone who's trying to install a pro style offense. Um, when you're installing an offense. You're having a quarterback competition. They're trying to do as much as they can teaching over Zoom meetings and all that kind of stuff. Like I'm sure Notre Dame is as, as well, but uh, no one really knows, you know, what the forecast is going to be. So they're just doing the best that they can. But it'll be very interesting to see. They don't seem to have a ton of concern at this point in terms of being able to install their offense. But um, I'm sure this was not the ideal setup for for a new offensive coordinator. Mike, just in general, in the time that you've been in Seattle. How would you compare, let's say, talent level and, and kind of culture between the University of Washington football and Notre Dame football during the time that you've been out there? Well, they're actually very similar. Um, and obviously, at, at University of Washington, there isn't the religious piece um, in terms of uh, the culture of the school and everything like that. But as you guys know, um, they recruit a lot of similar kids on the West Coast because UW has a lot of the same draws. Obviously, it's high-quality football, but it's also one of the best academic schools in the country. Um, I think U.S. News & World Report had it uh, number 10 in the world in its most recent ranking. So they, a lot of those kids who are interested in the degree and are interested in a, in a more um, – in, in, in an experience that goes beyond football, um, those are the kids that they're targeting. So you look at the guys on this roster for UW right now, uh, Julius Irvin was a guy that that Notre Dame wanted a lot. Kyler Gordon, Notre Dame wanted. Savan Ahmed, who's going to the NFL, Notre Dame really wanted. Um, there's been a, a number of guys that they've kind of battled over over the years. Um, so I think from a culture mindset and the kind of kids that they bring in, it's actually really similar. And that's something that's really struck me going from one program to the other. Mike, what uh what has Washington done in terms of maybe some social media stuff to to maybe try to entertain fans or keep fans interested in Washington football throughout this time and even recruits as well? Because I know Notre Dame has done some stuff. Uh, obviously, they they aired they're airing uh, a replays of games. They aired Notre Dame Texas last weekend. Um, they have plans to skip, uh, watch Notre Dame Florida State from 1993 this Saturday, and I think there's three more Saturdays they've already planned out um, in terms of rewatches. They've posted videos of coaches. Uh, kind of interviewing each other and t- and giving some updates from um, the football program. What is what is Washington been doing? Have they been doing anything like that? They haven't done it to that degree, but I mean, from a social media perspective, Washington had really changed just in the last couple of months with with Jimmy Lake coming in as the new head coach, um, someone who is significantly younger than Chris Peterson, and just wanted to attack things with a lot more energy. So there'd been much more of a social media presence in terms of like off-season workouts with all the different videos and stuff. In the last couple of days, they've put out videos with the, with all the different coaches kind of updating their own status and introducing you to their families and their, and their pets. And it's kind of been a cool behind the scenes thing. Nothing in terms of streaming games. Um, I don't think that they have the same you know rights that Notre Dame right. does um, in terms of the NBC deal, which is a really unique thing. And I think that's like a really, that's a really good idea The the, the biggest thing I think that that Washington has in this difficult time is an absolutely adorable mascot, um, Dubs <laughs> the Husky. And man, they've been just pumping Husky photos and videos out into the world, and it's a necessary thing. And I think we're all very appreciative of that. Mike, have you got any any sense of how the players and the coaches are coping? You know, just being kind of isolated and having to either use resistant bands or, or something even even less uh, you know less scientific or less conventional as far as workouts and so forth. Yeah, I, I'm not. I don't have a good sense of that. I know that you know as the rules are stated, you know the strength conditioning coaches are allowed to 
you know, do demonstrations and obviously continue to send workouts. And I think that, you know, those players are trying to do that to the best of their abilities. But I mean, in terms of something that's really creative when you can't get your hands on free weights and stuff, I'm not sure what the actual regimen is. Um, That's one aspect of this program. It's uh, Jimmy Lake. The new head coach is very good with access and I've been able to speak with him a lot. Um, Their strength and conditioning coach is not as, um, open to the interview process. So okay. it's not great as I know that you guys go through similar stuff in terms of getting specific details out, but I know that they're trying their best to try to, you know, maintain a level of conditioning. I'm just not positive how they're actually doing that. Mike, uh, during the ND Texas, uh, re-air that Notre Dame uh, put on Facebook last weekend from 2015, we were texting back and forth and that happened to be the first Notre Dame game that you covered as a part of our, uh, newspaper of the South Bend Tribune, and so uh, I thought that we could talk a little bit about that 2015 team. Um, a couple of questions I posed on Twitter this weekend after watching the game, and and somewhat inspired by some of the conversations you and I were having off uh, off the uh, through text message. Um, what what do you think Notre Dame's record in 2015 would have been with a defense different defensive coordinator? Obviously, that's that was a, a Brian Van Gorder production. And uh, number two, what would you what would have been Notre Dame's record if Malik Zaire didn't get hurt? It's such an interesting question. And I was really I was watching that game and talking to you and just really like nostalgic and thinking I was struck by how talented that team was. I mean, but there's really two there's two or three different dynamics in that um, to me. Uh, one is the Brian Van Gorder thing, which I think, you know, obviously was huge. And if you replace him with a competent defensive coordinator if you replace him with a current Clark Lee I think you know it's it's dramatically different look at this the defense going back through it is it's stunning I mean uh you had Sheldon Day who had a fantastic season at 15.5 tackles for loss Isaac Rochelle Romeo Aquara a freshman Jerry Tillery that's your defensive line you have four NFL players there Jalen Smith you know obviously had an incredible season but had one sack and they just didn't you know, there there was moments in that Texas game where they where they showed them blitzing him, and then they just didn't really do it the entire rest of the year, and there was no explanation as to why. I, mean, I remember them saying how much they loved his coverage abilities and wanting to drop him into coverage, mm-hmm. but that was a, a defense that really struggled to get pressure, and they just didn't use their most dynamic player in that way. Um, and then it strikes me that you know you had Joe Schmidt obviously that season who had kind of fallen off after the injury and you had Niles Morgan sitting on the bench who had a great season the year after that and Tavon Coney who became a heck of a player and neither one of them really played much. Um, so there's all kinds of, of things defensively there where I think that that should have been a top 10 defense and probably a top five defense and it inexplicably wasn't. Um, and then we get into, there was tons of injury issues with that team um, the whole Zaire Kaiser dynamic, you know, if they would have been better off um, with Kaiser, what would have happened if Zaire didn't get hurt? Long story short, I think that that team, when you look at all that talent, it should have been an undefeated team. And and the the games they lost, they barely lost, and they lost with a subpar defensive coordinator and just tremendous injury issues. So if you put it all together, that team really should have been undefeated. Okay. I, I would agree with you to a large extent, Mike. I, I think they certainly would be 11-1 and one, uh, because if, if Mike Elko or Mike Diaco were the defensive coordinator or Bob Diaco, even Bob Diaco would have gotten them through that game without losing to Stanford in that last possession where Stanford got down the field in 30 seconds. Um, and if it were Mike Elko or... or Clark Lee, I would say they'd have a pretty good chance of having beaten Clemson. You know, there were two really bad stretches of defense in that game for Notre Dame. The very two first possessions, Clemson went right down the field, was up 14 nothing, And then to open the third quarter, they scored fairly easily. So that was 21 points. So I, I think you could definitely make an argument for them to be undefeated that year. And, and you just look at the talent on that defense and you just say, hey, man, they were so average defensively with with Brian Van Gorder. I mean, I, I don't think people understood during the 2016 season when Notre Dame went four and eight how much Brian the decision to keep Brian Van Gorder and hire Brian Van Gorder almost cost 
Brian Kelly his job at Notre Dame. I mean, I think people can kind of see it now with as good as Clark Lee's been, but I think it was really difficult. People wrap their heads around how bad he was. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think uh, in terms of Notre Dame's record, I, the Clemson game, I'm not sure that I would put that one squarely on the defense. Uh, the offense had a, a few turnovers that I think were costly that um, prevented them from – they probably still could have won that game with the defensive effort that they got. Um, if, if the offense maybe cleaned things up a little bit, um, I think Notre Dame certainly would have beaten Stanford. Um, and, and maybe even they would have had a chance against Ohio State in the bowl. Now, granted, they probably wouldn't have actually played Ohio State in the bowl game if their record was different. But um, if it, uh, the Malik Zaire playing quarterback is 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 um, a tough one for me because Deshaun ended up playing so well at quarterback. Um, and I wasn't that co- confident in Malik's ability um going into that season, certainly he was confident and that's, that's a great starting point. Um, but he didn't play excellent at Virginia. Um, they ended up having to win that game late when uh, Deshaun Kaiser came in. Um, they had some other close games that uh, maybe Notre Dame would have lost if, if Deshaun Kaiser wasn't playing quarterback or if the quarterback play was lesser than what Deshaun Kaiser was, was uh, offering uh, Georgia tech and temple. Those were close games. Um, so I think there's a potential they could have lost a couple more games if Malik Zaire didn't play at the same level as Deshaun. Uh, now, it's hard to say. Certainly Malik's career after his injury would lead you to believe that he would have done worse, but I don't know how much his ankle injury uh, really changed the the, the uh, way his career ended up panning out. So um, that would have, that's a definitely a huge what-if moment in terms of Notre Dame football. What, what if Malik Zaire didn't get hurt? How would that have changed the trajectory of that season? Uh, we, you guys mentioned uh, how talented that 2015 team was. Uh, what do you, who, which team do you think is more talented, the 2015 team or the the 2018 team that ended up making it into the college football playoff? Well, um, I, I actually asked, you know, Tyler, I actually asked you that question when we were watching this game back because you, I mean, I watched that 2018 season, but obviously I wasn't covering that that team, but it just struck me that when you look at the NFL talent up and down the roster on the 2015 team, there's no way that you can match up in, in terms of, I mean, the coaching is so much better um, in 2018, I, I think, from a comprehensive standpoint. But that 2015 team, we haven't even talked about the offensive side of the ball, which their, you know, their offensive line is almost incomprehensible. They, Ronnie Stanley, Quentin Nelson, Mike McGlinchey, you have three first-round draft picks. And then Nick Martin, who's a third-round draft pick, and Steve Elmer, who probably would have been drafted had he decided to keep playing football. You know, your running backs are, are you know, pro-size uh, Josh Adams and Dexter Williams, three tremendous college running backs. Will Fuller is the most dynamic, you know, receiver of his era at Notre Dame. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's a big injury aspect to this, too. Like I mentioned, when I said that I think that they should be 12-0 and 0 in, in 2015, that's if, you know, Deshaun Kaiser is this, the starting quarterback and if a lot of things go right in terms of Durham Smythe only played in three games that year. I think he was an above-average tight end who didn't really play. And then Alizé Mack comes in, and he wasn't really ready. Um, and Jerron Jones was out for the year in fall camp, and you put him next to Sheldon Day, and everything changes. But um, I think the the QB thing is a big part of that. And, and the 2015 team, from my perspective, was a lot more talented. Um, and I'd be interested to hear from you guys who were covering those both those teams how you feel about that. I'll go. I'll go next, Tyler. Here, and I. I want to say with Zaire, I, I probably am not as confident in his ability to have a as good or better record than Kaiser. I think they would have lost the Virginia game. I mean, I got hurt just the way he was playing. He was throwing a lot of balls coming into the grass that day, and and I think Kaiser, Kaiser left that team up. I'm not sure if they win the USC or Temple games either without Kaiser. But in terms of talent, I would very much agree with. Um, Mike about the offensive players, but I think you could argue maybe a couple positions, you know, a senior version of Alizé versus a freshman version version of Alizé. Smythe was on that team. I think Komet and Alizé versus Smythe and the younger Alizé, maybe the tight ends were better in 2018. And, you know, collectively, we're going to play and think better than Brown. Uh, Fuller and Amir Carlisle. Fuller's just such a wild, I mean, he's such a trump card there. So I definitely, with that offensive line, give 
offensive line is so much better. They get 20, 15 year bands. When I look at defense, and I think there's some areas where Notre Dame's defense was better in 2018, especially at the back end of them. Um, you know, Alonghi and Elliott, I think, played much better than Max Redfield and Shoemate. And then the corners, you know, Julian Love had an, a unanimous All-America season with Troy Pride versus Larry Russell, who was very good. And Cole Luke, who was a, you know, decent corner, but, you know, kind of slow. You know, and the linebackers were Tony Drew Tranquil and Vinian um, Asma below the rover. And then the defensive line, I mean, when you think about it, I think they're pretty good. You have Julian O'Quara. I think Julian is better than Romeo. Tillery versus Day, I would take Tillery as a college player with Day at his best as a college player. Uh, Bonner and Cage, I think, are pretty comparable. I think Colin Kareem is better than Isaac Rochelle. And then when you think about the depth of the defensive line in 2018, that they could rotate guys in and keep them fresh. Right. I think that was something the 2015 team could do. So I think there's some good arguments on the defensive side that maybe 2018 was better and certainly they were better coach. But the offense, my goodness, they were really good in 2015. Yeah, the the offense... I think the I think it, it certainly leans in in the 2015 favor um, almost throughout. I think the tight ends are probably better in 2018, um, especially when you talk about Alex Mack being more mature and and being more um, ready at that point in his career than he was as a freshman when he had to fill in. Um, I, I, the wide receiver position to me it may maybe close to a wash. I think certainly Fuller is probably the best player of all of them, um, although. Certainly, Claypool maybe going off of next year was maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of Fuller, but I don't I don't know that it's the same. But I, I think when you talk about the combination of Boykin and Claypool, um, it's 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 kind of a almost a toss up in my opinion when you when you talk about Fuller and Chris Brown. I think Fuller was obviously great. Chris Brown was was okay, um, had, had some moments, but I think um, the potential of that 2018 team was was really good at the wide receiver group. But I, I think that's probably the only one that's really that close in my opinion uh, on the offensive side certainly that offensive line is is, is excellent <laughs> anyone would 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 kill to have that that kind of offensive line any season but and I think Eric's right in terms of the defense there were some areas uh, that um, especially the defensive line and even the secondary that I think the 2018 team was probably better but it's hard to I think you kind of have to wonder like well maybe if the coaching was better we would have seen the 2015 defense play better because some of these guys have been able to stick in the NFL even if, if they're not having great careers. Um, but I, I, th- I think that um, the, the linebacker thing is interesting too, because I think certainly Jalen Smith is the best linebacker of all those guys by a wide margin, but um, Tranquil and Coney combined had really good seasons. Um, so it's a little bit more competitive there than I think you would maybe think. But um, I do think that uh, that 2015 unit, just because you have Jalen Smith, you probably have to, to uh, aside with that. Another thing I wrote about this week, Mike, as we uh, try to come up with some ideas uh, to to entertain folks, as I put together my top five road venues um, that I've been to uh, covering Notre Dame football. So I was kind of curious to, to hear from both Mike and Eric, um, what what have been your guys' favorite atmospheres in terms of games that you've covered? Yeah, um, I think that my favorite, probably not just in my time but, you know, covering Notre Dame, but probably in general from a football standpoint was 2015 Clemson. Just, mm-hmm. you know, that has been, that was so memorable for me, not just because of it being, you know, Clemson, but just all the extenuating circumstances. Like you guys were both there in terms of the downpour, just the scene, it was so memorable. And the crowd, I've often said since, um, it wasn't dampened by the rain. It seemed to fuel them more. And there was this kind of, hysteria there i mean that was um that was a, a real moment where i realized that i'd covered some notre dame games and it's a cool atmosphere at notre dame but it just didn't compare it wasn't anywhere near the same level in terms of intensity in terms of sheer noise and decibels and you know seeing uh clemson run down the hill and which the way that game played out and it was just pouring rain throughout but the crowd just seemed to build off of that so I mean, I've been a lot of cool places and some really loud stadiums. Um, 
but I, I'll never forget 2015 Clemson. I think that's kind of top of the list for me. What about you, I Eric? Say, I would say my top five, and I will, I'll, I'll just play the top five, and I'll put number one. And I've been covering Notre Dame longer, so, so Ohio State ends up on this list, but not number one. Uh, they played there in the 90s, and they covered the Michigan, um, Clemson, Oklahoma, and oddly, Boston College. There have been times where that's not been a great venue, and there's been times where they are just defiant. And those are the fun games where they're trying to tackle the Notre Dame coaches, and and that's where it's it's kind of a cool atmosphere. It's a smaller stadium and so forth. Uh, but but I thought that was one of my favorites. I would say Oklahoma edges out Clemson for me as the old time. If their press box is better, it would be a wider margin. Uh, <laughs> a horrible, horrible press box. Uh, but it was that whole experience in Oklahoma was was just incredible. I you know, and the Clemson thing was special too because of how big that game turned out to be in retrospect and also the weather and those whatever those barbecue jackets or whatever that we have. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah. I, I... I think I had Oklahoma four on my list. I really, I really liked Oklahoma. I think the, the top four were really easy for me. I think they're pretty clearly separated. I think I could have done some shuffling there. Uh, and I wonder if the three games I have ahead, it, I think ended up being more dramatic games down the stretch than that Oklahoma game. Certainly it was a, the Oklahoma game was closer. Most of it, but Notre Dame really pulled away at the end. Um, so maybe that um, uh, makes me lean towards the other games. I had Georgia as my top one. Clemson was the top one until we went down to Georgia this past season. That was uh, quite the experience and, and even surpassed some of the expectations I had for it. it they did, did some really cool things. And uh, Florida State was my, my the third one. I, that was a really cool experience in 2014 um, when they went down there to play the defending national champions and nearly almost beat them until uh, the penalty flag came out on that Corey Robinson touchdown. Um, so th- those were at the top of my list. Um, I, Mike, I'm curious, you have you have different perspective from us now, now covering – teams uh, a team in the Pac-12 what's the best Pac-12 venue you've been to so far well it, it's you know it's different perspective out out here um, a lot of the you know a lot of the stadium atmospheres don't measure up to the absolute best you'd see covering Notre Dame games but, you know both at Notre Dame and then when like you said when when you'd go to a game that's at Michigan or at Florida State or at Clemson I mean those are some of the best atmospheres in the country but from a Pac-12 perspective um, I will say UW is a really unique atmosphere. If anyone has been there or has seen it, um, Husky Stadium sits right on top of Lake Washington. Uh, they call it the greatest setting in college football. Um, and there's definitely an argument to be made there. It, similar to if you've been to a game at Tennessee, um, they do something called sailgating, where you know the morning of a game, all these yachts and boats are lining up the edge of Lake Washington and they'll put down their anchor and they'll get on a water taxi and go into shore and go to the game. And uh, it's just a different experience than pretty much anywhere else in the country. In, in terms of memorable experiences, I would say Washington and then Oregon is also right there um, in terms of a place that has kind of an intimate, uh, smaller stadium, but just a, a ton of noise that comes out of there. Um, I, I don't think it's as, um, it's not as deep of a conference in terms of great stadium atmospheres, but there are a couple of really good ones at the top. Sure. And those, those are definitely my top two. Uh, one thing I wanted us to talk about a little bit, I, I hadn't really considered it much before I, I, I thought about it, uh, having us discuss it on the podcast. What's, what's the least favorite stadium that you guys have covered a game in? This is a, this is really a great question. <laughs> it, it took me some, some time to think about it. Um, I'll, I, I'll give you two. Um, one from my Notre Dame experiences, as much as I loved the weekend and loved the trip, um, the Shamrock Series uh, game at the Alamo, Alamo Dome in Texas, I, I was not impressed with the Alamo Dome at all. I might catch a flack for that, but I was thinking, <laughs> I mean, it's really dark in there and the lighting is just kind of you know dingy. It reminded me of watching Notre Dame spring practices in the Loftus Center where you're like, it feels kind of like you're in someone's garage and you're watching a game. Now, I'll, I'll say, like, the rest of, of the weekend there was great. 
Um, and the press box is very low to the field. You have a great view of everything, but it just is not aesthetically pleasing um, at all. And, and I wasn't impressed from that perspective. Another one that I'll give you um, from my time covering Wyoming in the Mountain West, you'd see a lot of smaller <laughs> uh, stadiums. Um, and we went out to San Jose State for a game at Spartan Stadium. And that one was kind of falling apart. Two, you just weren't sure if, if it really felt like it was college football facilities. I believe the current capacity there is 21,000. Um, and it is a, it's a struggling uh, program in terms of funding. And I'll just tell a short story. Um, I was covering a basketball game at uh, San Jose State one time, and it was during winter break. So there wasn't a ton of students there. And I, and I noticed in the arena that it was just freezing, freezing cold. And I asked why, why it was so cold. It was probably 50 degrees inside. And they said that when school's not in session, they can't turn on the heat. So you just had to play <laughs> as it was. And thankfully for all of us, now we're covering programs that have a little bit more money, but that struggles. And that felt like, what are we doing here? It's like 50 degrees and we're playing a Division One basketball game. So that's uh, not on the higher end of my experiences. Yeah, it, it, I, I've been to the Alamo Dome, but only to cover uh, the U.S. Army All-American Bowls. And so that, those are a little bit different experiences. Obviously, you're not expecting like a sellout crowd for those kinds of games, but they, do, they would have good crowds and they'd have a lot of folks in the army at the game. So that added a kind of a neat atmosphere to it for an all-star game. So I've never been to an actual football game. I didn't make that trip um, when Notre Dame played down there. So that's an interesting inclusion on your list. Eric, what would you say is your least uh, favorite stadium? I imagine um, if we're just talking about locations, uh, Shreveport's uh, towards the top of your list. <laughs> well, well, that that wasn't covering Notre Dame, though. That was me covering Indiana. And that <laughs> was, right. we're talking about um, a true road venue. I mean, Absolutely, Shreveport in every way would be at the bottom of every <laughs> list. Other than the fact that the people are awesome, I will say that. But everything else about it was very depressing. Um, but the worst road game that I can remember covering was Penn State in 2007. Um, it was Jimmy Clausen's first start. We stayed about an hour away. Um, our, our photographer, Marcus Martyr, decided to take us to a bar called the Hitchin Post, and this bar had hotel rooms attached to the back of it. That tells you the kind of place it was. <laughs> um, and so then we get to the game, and we're walking through the parking lot to the stadium, and the Penn State fans are trash-talking us. And it's not like we we're wearing Notre Dame colors. It's like, how do they know we're not from around there? You know, how do they know that we're Right. Uh, visiting media, but they were giving us a hard time. And then, um, you know, it's not the greatest vantage point from a press box. And then behind us, there were these guys that were cheering for Penn State. And then they started kind of trying to trash talk us. <laughs> and it's like, what are you doing? You know, do whatever. You know, if you're supposed to be keeping stats or getting me a coat, go do that. Um, so that whole experience was just really, really, really weird. Um, and so I'm sure that, that that stadium has had better days. I mean, they've got a great fan base and, and a great program, but man, that was a crappy press box and just having those people in the press box who were so loud, uh, you know, it was almost like sitting next to certain people in our press box. <laughs> <laughs> if, if we're going to take press box in consideration, I think Stanford might be there for me because they have yeah. these weird chairs that you, you have to like sit in the very front of them in order to like not lean back and like fall down to not be able to see over the table and see to the field. Um, so I, I, I think Stanford's kind of a cool setup. The crowd and the atmosphere there is never really that cool. Um, that it's not like they're selling out or anything. So that's a little bit lackluster. I certainly like always going out to Stanford, and especially if you get good weather um, and, and being in San Francisco for a weekend it isn't a bad time. I think maybe like the least impressive uh, atmosphere I've been to was probably Wake Forest in 2018. Uh, maybe that had something to do with it being a day game and certainly not being a great team. Um, and it was really hot, so I think some fans were probably uh, taking a beating out there. But that was – wasn't very impressive. The same season uh, playing at Northwestern, that was the first time I'd actually been to, to, to Northwestern for a game. Um, not a very big big field, a pretty old school 
um, and and not not necessarily old school in a way that that there was a real nostalgia to it or anything. So um, those are probably the the least impressive stadiums that I've been to, and uh, uh, I think um, that uh, Purdue maybe could make it on the list. Purdue's um, not not the greatest, uh, but um, Boston College you mentioned earlier, I I didn't. I, that was one that surprised me a bit when Mike and I went back in, I think that was 2017. Um, certainly they weren't the greatest team, but they had a pretty decent atmosphere. I think um, I, I remember that being uh, better than I had expected, although the stadium's not necessarily the most impressive thing. Um, so it's um, been a lot of interesting experiences and hopefully uh, this coronavirus stuff clears out of the way and we are allowed to play football this season and we can make some uh, more road trips uh, at some more place to less certainly uh, Lambeau Field is where we, the one of the big ones that we want to get to this year. That's where Notre Dame plays Wisconsin. You got any good uh, trips for Washington planned if 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 the season goes on as expected, Mike? You know, this isn't a great year in terms of road games. Uh, the big non-conference game that you might have heard about is is their opening UW's opening hosting uh, Michigan this season, right. and it's a that's a home and home. So that'll be coming in 2021. I mean, because of my timing covering Notre Dame, I actually never got to the big house and I've still never been there. So that's one that I'm kind of looking way down the line beyond that. I mean, it's all just pretty much your typical uh, conference game environments. Um, and I'll, I'll add, you know, just, just agreeing with you earlier, you know, Washington all, also plays uh, Stanford um, every season and just being back there last, last year, it's pretty uninspiring, man. It's, uh, <laughs> I think it was in the low twenty thousands in terms of attendance, and the game was just was just kind of gross all around. I know that the the band gets a lot of love, but beyond that, it just it just doesn't do anything for me there. I think it's just you know it's just a missed opportunity with with how good that team was for so many years. Um, the lack of of fan support is is very uh, disappointing. Well, all right, Mike, that's all we got for you. We appreciate uh, you taking time to join us today. Uh, certainly stay safe out there in Seattle, and uh, we'll be catching up with you again sometime soon. And keep all in right. mind, Arby's is open during the <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have ever known that because I'll, I'll never <laughs> look into it. I'll never search for it. Nothing has changed. If, if anything, I'm just more determined than ever to go to better places like Culver's. <laughs> hey, there you go. That's a good one. Local plug. All right. Well, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. All right. Now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys – are we done with USC? Yeah. Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right. Let's go. First question I have for us, Eric, um, from Twitter. You can tweet us your questions. I'm, I'm at TJamesNDI, and Eric is at EHansonNDI. First one is from Greg Flaming at Greg2126. We've heard a about all the negatives of spring ball being canceled. What are some of the positives of a scenario where the team has training camp, OTA style practices in July, then moves into fall camp in August, assuming it happens, he says. I think the biggest positive, and we just, Mike early, Mike Varell early in his discussion kind of showed you the difference is the Reese book connection, their familiarity, Mm -hmm. uh, that you fact you have an experienced quarterback, you're not having a quarterback competition, you know who your quarterback is, you know what the offense is going to look like, uh, you're not trying to install different concepts and terminology. I think that's a huge advantage over a lot of teams. Um, I also think having an experienced offensive line is going to pay off because, again, other offensive lines will not be able to work so much on their chemistry and, and, you know, working through things, whereas Notre Dame's going to have five starters back on its offensive line. And then some key pieces on defense. I mean, you have some areas where you have to replace some people, but you think about Dalen Hayes and Adeo Gandeji being new starters. Well, you know, Dalen has started before in his career. Ade has been like a co-starter almost. And, and again, a lot of their positions, two out of three linebacker positions, you're in good shape. You know, the one area that's really a concern is, you know, getting the cornerbacks uh, moving in the right direction. But I think Notre Dame, again, having a veteran team, especially a veteran quarterback, is a huge advantage. 
Yeah, I think certainly another positive, I think, is they did have a number of guys injured going into the spring, and those guys, I would assume many of them would be available for whatever happens in July and August, um, especially when we talk about the offensive line. Certainly they had guys that were out there practicing, um, but to be more close to full strength um, this summer, I think will be help. I think just the fact that they were, it would be maybe closer together, I think helps maybe build some more momentum. It's not like you're starting at one point, then stopping and then getting back together and having to restart everything. And maybe, uh, maybe there's less of like um, things that you have to redo in terms of the beginning of, of those sessions um, with your picking up with practice, um, not too far after whatever would happen in July. So I think that could allow for maybe a better transition um, and uh, we would see um, if that if Notre Dame could take advantage of that. I think everyone's going to have to figure out how to to best do this while also keeping in mind the safety of the players, obviously. Um, so I, I think it's an interesting question. I, um, I there's certainly like we've talked about, there's areas of the team that really needed whatever opportunities they could get in the spring, um, but also I think um, the, those whatever they have set up for them, they're going to have to work to make up those those differences. All right, next question we have is from Jude at NDJRS. Um, and he says, perhaps a question for Carter Carls, which I did reach out to Carter to get his answer, so I'll chime in after after I ask the question. What percentage of Notre Dame commits would you guess would get on the phone with Lincoln Riley or Jim Harbaugh if those coaches called to chat them up and to try to get them to decommit from the Irish? So, Eric, before I let you chime in, I'll, I'll share what Carter said. He, he said, assuming that they'd – uh, at the very least, hear them out. He said he would go with 43%, and he said three out of the seven commits. He didn't necessarily name the commits, but that was what he would guess. And he, he certainly has more insight into the current commits, um, having relationships and talking to those guys that, than we do. What, what, what would be your guess? Well, I didn't do the math as in <laughs> multiples of seven. Right, right. So I, I would put the percentage lower. I'd put it maybe a little bit less than a third. Um being willing to do it just because I think they'd be afraid that Blake Fisher would beat them up. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's my answer. I, I mean, Tyler Buckner, I, I, I'm sure you would say, why are you wasting my time? I mean, some guys might be polite. Um, and I don't know that any of them, maybe styles would be the one that would listen. Well, yeah. We already know that he, we already know that he did listen to Jim Harbaugh. He yeah. been talking to, to Michigan. Right. I would say most of those guys, I, I just don't see it, but Carter's way more in touch with that than we are, or than I am anyways. Right, yeah, and, and me too. We, we can say that. I, I, certainly I have experience of covering recruiting for a while, and I think in general, not, not, not taking into account the specific kids in this, this Notre Dame class right now, but I think in general the percentage might be higher than people would think. I, I thought it would maybe be closer to 60%. Um, I think kids are willing to hear out coaches that are, that want to talk to them and they're willing to hear their recruiting pitches. Maybe at some point in their recruitment, they would shut things down when it's getting closer to the end for them. But especially like at this point of the recruiting process, um, there's not a real, I mean, even though you could be a hundred percent committed to Notre Dame, there's, there's still reasons that, well, maybe Notre Dame changes their mind or maybe there's something that changes in your ability to get to Notre Dame. So you should, be keeping your options open and listening to what other coaches have to say. And I, I don't think if Lincoln Riley or Jim Harbaugh want to talk to those commit or the, those Notre Dame commits that they would say, Hey, I, I'm going to talk to you for a little bit. We're going to see if you want to decommit. They're just going to try to pitch their program. And then if it, that leads to that kid decommitting from Notre Dame, that's what happens. They're not going to be as overt about it. So I think it's, it's a, I think kids are probably more open to listening to head coaches and other, especially head coaches. And think, it might be a little bit different for like assistant coaches, but if they, if they know that they can get a pretty um, important head coach in a program that they have some interest in, or they know that is a good program, I think they would be um, more than half of them would be, would be likely to at least listen to see what that coach had to say rather than um, be very uh, stringent about not talking to other coaches. Next question we have is from Brett Kovach at Brett Kovach. What's more likely for Ian book after next year drafted in the NFL or the XFL? You know, I mean, this isn't a knock against Ian. I just kind of look at it where he was this year, and and the answer to that would have been the XFL this year. Right. Um, you know, the one thing is, again, let's let's assume Notre Dame plays a full schedule of football games. So we're assuming that they do. Right. Um, to answer this question, the 
again, having this advantage of such great chemistry with his play caller, quarterback, coach, offensive coordinator, he may look a little bit better on the field than some other quarterbacks who maybe don't have that advantage. And maybe he turns into a late round or a priority free agent kind of guy, but I would still think that the XFL, you know, based on his skill set and everything else is still the more realistic option of those two. Yeah, I, I think that's probably right. I, I'm a little afraid to say XFL just based on maybe do we know that the XFL is going to still be around next year? I think that that adds a layer of uncertainty to to it. But it, it, I mean, if we're just assuming that everything is fine and um, the, the seasons go on as planned, the XFL comes back and, and needs needs quarterbacks for its its uh, football league um, next season. Um, I think the XFL would be slightly ahead at this point. Now, certainly. Um, Ian can change that by playing really well this coming year. Certainly his, his physical limitations will always, will, I, I don't think are going to go away. Um, and so he's not going to be seen as the classic six foot four quarterback that everyone wants to draft high in a draft, but I think he would have a chance to maybe stick somewhere in the NFL. And, and I think even if he doesn't get drafted in the NFL, I still think he, he obviously would prefer to sign on as an undrafted free. Well, I guess I don't know that. Um, if you would prefer to sign on as an undrafted free agent somewhere in the NFL rather than waiting for, around for an XFL opportunity. So it, it's hard to get a sense of how that's going to play out now with um, with guys that are maybe borderline NFL players. If they they see some uh, see the XFL as a better route in terms of getting playing time and, and proving themselves, because certainly there were quarterbacks that played that were starting quarterbacks in the XFL this past season. who didn't even get to finish their seasons, but they have signed with NFL teams this offseason. So. Um, I'm sort of interested in seeing how that plays out for everyone, let, let alone Ian Book. Um, but I think XFL is in a slightly now, but certainly that can that can change uh, depending on how Ian plays this upcoming season. Next question is from Jack Quinn at JQ6008. Stanford isn't listed on future schedules after 2024. Given their decline, is ND looking to replace the Cardinal with another team to end odd year seasons? And given conference and rivalry commitments, how possible is that logistically? Well, I sometimes get hung up on the question that I did on this one because the decline kind of got to me. You know, they were four and eight last year. They won 40 games total in the four years before that. They've had 10 straight years of eight wins or more until the four and eight season. So maybe this is their 2016 and they bounce back. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Their, their last four years aren't worse than USC's last four years. <laughs> right. And so, so, you know, let's say even if Stanford isn't as strong consistently, David Shaw goes to the NFL and they don't get a great replacement there. Um, I'm not sure that you bail on Stanford anyways, because there's, there's reasons Notre Dame likes that flip flop with USC and Stanford middle of October at home for one on the West coast to end the season on the other, right. with it being Thanksgiving week, it's a good week to travel for them. You don't, you're not trying to fill. And then there's an economic reason for it. You're not trying to fill Notre Dame stadium in maybe brutal weather Thanksgiving weekend and, and, and maybe not maximizing, you know, your revenue there. So there's a lot of reasons Stanford makes sense. You know, before they worked into the Stanford, USC flip-flop, you know, it's basically been almost 20 years. You, know, you had Air Force at one point. You, you messed around with Hawaii a little bit. One year they had Syracuse. Um, and then before that, in the 70s and 80s, it was mostly Miami. Um, would you rather it be Miami or Florida? I, you know, Stanford's been the most more consistent of those two programs lately. Right. Except for last year, and even Miami wasn't very good. So. I wouldn't bail on it. I, I think it's hard to get somebody to play you rivalry week. Um, and right. so, and you want to be in warm weather that week. So I, I would, I would be pretty happy to continue that series. Yeah, I think, well, you mentioned Miami, certainly you're already going to play Miami some based off the ACC uh, relationship. So, I don't know right. that they would want to add another team that they already know that they're going to play some games against. Certainly it would be more regular then, and maybe they could, that would change their 
uh, this the shuffle they had with the ACC. I don't know how that would, that would actually work out. Um, it, but I think they like ending the season in California, like like you mentioned. Um, so I, I don't I don't see them changing it. I'm not sure why they would. I think um, it's it's set up in a in a good way for them. I don't think Stanford is going to drop off that dramatically. That it's it's a waste of time. Certainly, it's a little bit interesting given like the the playoff conversation because Notre Dame wants to have a a good game to end its regular season on because they don't have the conference championship game. So you would like that to be a strong game, but if it's not Stanford, I don't know that you're going to be able to guarantee that it's going to be a strong team because like we've mentioned that that's when teams are normally played in rivalry games. It would see, it would seem to be that if, if they were going to change it, the easiest switch would be another PAC 12 team because the PAC 12 team or the PAC 12 has already worked in this uh, way of having a, a, one of our conference teams available to play that weekend. Um, And so I think, um, that if if this were to happen, if they were to say see it at Stanford, I think they would maybe look at the Pac-12. And I don't know that there's another. I mean, certainly maybe like Oregon, but Oregon doesn't give you the same recruiting um, advantage that that uh, it does to, they, to play against teams in California. Um, so I, I think that I I, I would be uh, surprised if something like that happened. And certainly Oregon would have its own rivalry games that he would have to try to get out of and, and rearrange. Um, so I, I think that. It seems unlikely that this will change. They just haven't necessarily uh, renewed an agreement to anyone's knowledge um, beyond 2024, but I would imagine that it, it will be extended and they will keep that series intact. Next one we have is from one foot down at one foot down. M- more of a statement than a question, but I, I thought of a question to follow up with it. They said, reinforce our take that Jimmy Clausen was a savage in tw- 2009. It's not hard to do. And then so my question off of that was, for you, Eric, is Jimmy Clausen in 2009 the best quarterback season you've seen covering Notre Dame? I would say from a pure statistical standpoint, he was. And you got to do it relative to what the other quarterbacks were doing. Right. He had a 151.42 pass efficiency rating, which is about 40 points below what Joe Burrow had this year. But it still would be 10th best in 2019 back I think when was, jimmy did it right he w- he was number three and yep. he almost beat out Tebow and kellen moore to win the pass efficiency um race so so those numbers have been going up every year um nationally so compared to his competition that was the best year i would say since i've been covering notre dame the guy that had the best year and and statistically he was pretty good this year he was a top 10 quarterback that year as well but the way that he lifted a team I, I don't think Jimmy could overcome the mediocrity on defense I think Brady Quinn could and so Brady Quinn in 2005 for me is the best year that I've seen a quarterback have for Notre Dame all right yeah uh Jimmy in 2009 had seven 300 yard passing games um, that's a, a Notre Dame record, um, and and he's he's tied for first with that passing efficiency number um, from 2009 with 161.4. Um, Jimmy's stats that year he was he was 289 of 425 and only threw four interceptions um, with 3,722 yards. That was 68 percent completion percentage um, and 28 touchdowns. So a heck of a year. Um, and that that's uh, that was that the year that. Michael Floyd went out with an injury. Is that correct, too? I think that might be um, right. I think so. I'm going to have to look at Michael's numbers. We're all stall while we're <laughs> talking. But uh, um, he had, I mean, Jimmy had Michael Floyd, Golden Tate, and uh, Kyle Rudolph for at least part of the years, which is um, a step up from the whole collective group that Brady Quinn had, led, led by Jeff Samarja. Um, so. Yeah, Michael Floyd played in seven games that year. That was too Okay, so yeah, so he had the broken collarbone part of that year. Um, but but still, I mean, he had some really great weapons, uh, Jimmy did. and, and uh, But again, given what Brady Quinn was able to do, coax those teams into the back-to-back into BCS games. Right. Um, whereas the 2008-2009 Clawson teams were basically 500 teams. Not not any fall of Jimmy's, right. but 
Um, you know, both those guys had really good years, but statistically, Jimmy is savage. I'll, I'll <laughs> do that. And, and, um, when you do the whole context, I get Brady Quinn and Edge in 2005. All right. I, I'll agree with you there. I think that's, uh, you certainly know more to me, and I think it's a pretty good argument. Next question is from Mitch, Rich Marazzi at Rich Marazzi is if Kansas State doesn't lay an egg to Baylor in 2012, and if Notre Dame beats Kansas State in the national title game, how many more regular season wins would Notre Dame have won in the last seven years? How many more BCS or college football playoff appearances would have they have made in the last seven years? And would Brian Kelly still be the coach today? A lot of hard questions to sort of wrap our heads around first. I think let's start with just Brian Kelly still being the coach today. What do you think that he would still be the coach if Notre Dame won the, the championship in 2012? Well, I think that if he were going to leave, it would have been after the 2012 season. If you remember, he had the flirtation with the right. Philadelphia Eagles and kind of went off the grid. But a lot of what Brian was trying to do there was trying to get infrastructure for Notre Dame football if he were going to stay. It wasn't about him trying to get more money and play that out of it. But he might have said, hey, look, I'm winning a national championship at Notre Dame. What else? You know, it's only going to go downhill from here. Right, yeah, yeah. I don't I like go to the NFL. So yeah. I think if there was a window to jump, that would have been the year. So that's how I answer that question. I'll let you go. Yeah, I, I think I think the same thing. And, and I think Brian Kelly eventually kind of shut down that, at least the way he's described it to us. He, he's not really uh, interested in the NFL anymore. And he's been saying that for a few years now. I think he would have probably chased that more if maybe not immediately after the 2012 season, but in the seasons coming after that, because I think he probably would have had a, a sense of accomplishment of what he did at Notre Dame and, and feel less obligated to stay here and, and try to get that elusive national championship. Um, so I, I, w- I think that he probably would have ended up in the NFL um, at some point if, it, if he had, if he had already won a national championship at Notre Dame um, for, I don't, I don't, I wasn't really sure how to handle all the win stuff. I, I think it's kind of hard to project that. What, how many more regular season wins would Notre Dame have won in the last seven years? Because um, I think, well, one, you, you kind of have to decide, well, are we doing this based off if Kelly is still at Notre Dame um, for all those years or if Kelly had left, which we think could have been a possibility after that. Um, so how did you kind of to tackle that those questions? Well, I think, honestly, the record wouldn't have changed that much. And here's why I say that they had a really good recruiting class in 2013 right. and they were going to have that, whether they won that championship or not, I'm not sure that they would have added, you know, that many more great players than they already right. had, including Jalen Smith. Um, but here, here's the key. This is where the fork in the road is for me, not winning the national championship or not. It's, hiring Brian Van Gorder or not. Yep, yep, because yep. if you still make that hire after the 2013 season, you're still going to struggle and people are going to jump off the bandwagon. And and that national championship isn't going to buy you any more, um, any more collateral with the fan base. Um, if you have seasons like you did, the Brian Van Gorder hiring was, and retention were really significant. And then Brian Kelly has the reinvention. All those things still happen if Notre Dame wins that 2012 championship. So I'd say the records are very similar. Yeah, I think maybe if Notre Dame had won that championship, maybe the pool for defensive coordinator candidates changes once Bob Diaco is gone. Um, and that's that leads to someone else besides Brian Van Gorder doing it. But it, I don't even know. Like even when Brian Van Gorder was hired, did did he seem like he was the gotta have guy? I don't. That doesn't. That's not how I remember it, at least. So I don't know if well, Kelly would have even I, been I influenced you, by that. I can tell you. Yeah, I can tell you what Brian said because we talked about it um, in a one-on-one interview, and I said, you know, what was what was it about Brian Van Gorder that that attracted it to him, and and if Bob Diaco didn't get the Connecticut job would he still have been coaching the same style? And he said, now again, they don't play Alabama and get crushed. Right. So maybe they're not thinking about this as much, but he said, I knew that we had to evolve defensively. And 
if Bob Diaco had stayed, we would have played defense in a different style. We mm-hmm. would have had to adjust. So Bob Diaco was going to make that adjustment at Notre Dame, or they were going to go get a defensive coordinator. And what Brian Kelly said that he liked about um, Brian Van Border was back when they were together at Grand Valley State, way back earlier in their careers, you know, they had a very similar philosophy. Brian actually came up on the defensive side of the ball mm-hmm. and then flipped over to being an offensive guy. But at, at early in their careers, they would talk a lot about defensive philosophy and they had a thought about how they wanted to pressure. And, and there were times where Brian wanted to hire Van Gorder earlier but they never were kind of in a position where, where either Van Gorder was free or um, Brian had an opening. So it went and went and went. And finally, this kind of aligned when Brian was the Jets linebackers coach. Now, in hearing Brian Van Gorder's philosophy, I was sold. You know, when you <laughs> sat down and heard, right. heard him, you said, wow, that's what's, what it's going to look like? Sign me up. But it sure. never looked like that. Mm-hmm. Um, teams were able to predict where pressures were coming from. I think Brian Kelly felt like with with Brian McGorder having spent time with Rex Ryan, that he was going to get Rex Ryan. He was going to get a protege of Rex Ryan. He was going to get gotcha. Rex Ryan's scheme and a guy who could push buttons like Rex Ryan. What he got was Rex Ryan's scheme in a much too complicated form and a guy who couldn't push buttons. And and that almost killed Brian Kelly's career. Right, yeah, and you would think in this hypothetical of, of Brian Kelly having won a national championship, he would be even more emboldened to just do what he wanted to do and hire guys that he already felt strongly with. So I don't know that he would have hired anyone differently than Brian Van Gorder in that situation. So I think the same thing might so – now certainly the recruiting would probably change – Beyond that 2013 class, I think they probably would be able to get a couple more guys here or there. But that's also relying on the coaching staff to go out and do that. And some of uh, one of Brian Van Gorder's downfall was that he wasn't a very active recruiter um, and, or an inspiring one or one that really cared too much about it from discussions we had with him. So at least he didn't project that. Um, so I, I think that I think you're, you're probably closer to right than anything that it would probably still have panned out the same way if Notre Dame had won a title. I, I thought like, say if they want to, uh, if Kelly stayed and they won that title, maybe they can get their average was they won say, 64 games in those seven seasons. So a little bit more than nine per season. So maybe they can get that average up to 10 games. Um, maybe the, maybe the 2016 season doesn't happen as, as isn't as harsh. Maybe it's, maybe it's more closer to a 500 season or something, but I, I think without Kelly, Say Kelly goes goes to a different goes to the NFL after the 2012 season. Now certainly, someone is going to get the opportunity to take over a program that just won a national championship. But um, based off the success Notre Dame has had before Brian Kelly with with identifying the right coaches, it's hard to be extremely confident that that they would have been able to find a guy um, that could consistently win as, as Brian has in recent seasons. So I thought maybe the, the average goes maybe down to maybe eight games a season if if Kelly is not here. Um, so I, I, it's certainly an interesting question. There's no way for any of us to know who, how this would have panned out. And there's certainly it, it was when you change one little thing, the, the ripple effects um, um, can go a number of different ways. So um, something uh, certainly an intriguing question and one that uh, inspired a lot of thought. Last question we have is from Josh Melton at Joshua Melton. Eric, do you have a favorite year of covering Notre Dame football that sticks out for whatever reason? I would say the two, you know, and I've been covering Notre Dame as my primary uh, focus since the Bob Davey era. So right after Lou Holtz left, I would say 2005 and 2012. I think 2005 because Notre Dame was the national surprise team. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember Lee Corso predicting that they were going to get into October without a win. And, and they surprised everybody, played USC toe-to-toe in the Bush, Bush game, you know, played Ohio State in the Fiesta Bowl. That was exciting. And then the 2012 game, or the 2012 season, because Notre Dame got to the number one position in the polls for, for two or three cycles. 
for the first time in two decades, and Notre Dame was relevant again, and all the things that kind of came with it. It was a shame that we had the aftermath in 2012, but a lot of, you know, having a Heisman Trophy candidate. <laughs> um, yeah. And, yeah, that certainly turned sour pretty quickly for us. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it did, and, and that was also a very interesting time, but the time that we were going through it was certainly, you know, a, a defensive player finishing second in the Heisman Trophy race, Right. Um, and just, you know, Notre Dame playing such great defense and getting to the national championship game, which people thought they'd never be able to do, you know, wearing the number one ranking for, you know, two or three poll cycles was really exciting. So those are the two. Yeah, I think um, I wasn't as involved in the 2012 season. I was I was on staff. That was my first full year with the Tribune. Uh, but I was doing more recruiting. I did get to go down to the Oklahoma game, um, so that was really cool. I think the 2015 season was really fun just because uh, mm-hmm. the kind of the twist that happened with Deshaun Kaiser and how much success they did have and um, coming so close to Clemson and then being really into it into the through the till the end of the season when they lost at Stanford in, in kind of a heartbreaking fashion. So that was a, a very entertaining season. Certainly 2018 was was a lot of fun too. I, I think. Some of it, like certainly when Notre Dame wins, it, it's more interesting and it brings a lot of interesting storylines. But uh, the 2018 season was fun for me just because all the, the interesting travel that we were able to do. Because I, I got to go out to, to San Diego and Los Angeles uh, and uh, went out to New York uh, to, when they played Syracuse. And we got to go to Northwestern and play in Chicago. So I did a lot of traveling that year. I was definitely worn out after that. And certainly the college ball playoff experience in, in, in Dallas. So that that was a really good time. Um, I was, I was, I definitely needed to, <laughs> needed to catch up on, on sleep and stuff by the end of that season, but it, that was a really uh, interesting year. Um, and it probably would have been regardless, just based on the travel, but the fact that they were able to put together a college ball playoff run um, made it even that much more interesting. All right, that's it for this episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Leave us a review or rating if you like what you hear. We hope to be back soon with another podcast to help keep you guys occupied. Until then, stick with NDInsider.com for all our Notre Dame football coverage.